Welcome, fantastic friends and fans, to the second episode of the FanCast at Four podcast. My name is Dan Bettenhausen, and I'm your host as we venture into the what-ifs of Marvel's first family, who will soon be appearing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With Spider-Man director John Watts set to direct the Fantastic Four, rumors and speculation are flying around as to who will be playing the comic book royalty. But what if a different director was behind the camera? This is what we hope to explore in this podcast. Here is how each episode works. Each episode will focus on one director who has never helmed an MCU film. Myself and a special guest will then fan cast a Fantastic Four film based on actors and actresses who the director has worked with previously and who have also not been cast in a major MCU role. We will each be casting a Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic, Sue Storm, a.k.a. Invisible Woman, Johnny Storm, a.k.a. The Human Torch, Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, and their nemesis, Victor Von Doom, also known as Dr. Doom. After comparing lists, we will then give a pitch as to what the film may look like. To allow for a little more creativity, the film pitch does not need to be part of the MCU. Also, if you want to hear a brief history of the Fantastic Four, you can check out our first episode, where guest and show producer Pat Bolfamonte provides a breakdown of each of the characters. With that said, let's meet this episode's guest. This week, I'm excited to have my friend Patrick Gibson on the episode. I like to describe Patrick as a sommelier of film. With a worldly palette for films, you should check out his letterbox reviews for both a critical and witty glimpse into films you may not normally check out. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Dan. It's uh, it's going to be a very fun time, uh, especially in the wake of the first episode. It's going to be uh, interesting to see the road that we go down, particularly in contrast to what you and Pat discussed in that first week. Definitely. I mean, the director we have this week is... I'd say a pretty big divergence from Steven Spielberg, but I'm excited to see where things go. Patrick, before we get into who this director is for the episode, I have some questions for you. What would you say your general taste in film is, and what are your thoughts on superhero movies? I mean, with with how some directors are coming out, commenting on what superhero movies should be, their thoughts, I'm curious about you, knowing knowing your taste, but for the audience, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's hard to sort of pinpoint a specific taste in movies I have, I tend to go as varied as possible, uh, especially not even with genre, but again, the world over, I want to watch movies from all different cultures, see all different perspectives. And that's, that's what's really important to me when it comes to consuming film. As for superhero movies, I mean, to me, any superhero movie can be just as good as any other movie. It's not about the criticism that we see from people like a Martin Scorsese about how they are maybe not necessarily ruining Hollywood, but changing Hollywood in a way that's a little more negative. I think each of these things can be great individually. And you mean, you look at something like Logan, I think that's a very unique way to tell a superhero story and especially the fall of a once great superhero. I think we can look to that sort of thing as an example of how superhero movies can be more than some things that are criticized often about it being cookie cutter and that sort of response. Awesome. No, I appreciate you going into a little more detail there. Now let's dive into this week's director. Before revealing his name, I want to go over some career highlights. He has 10 films in his filmography. He has one Best Picture nom, three Best Director noms, and four nominations and two wins for Best Original Screenplay. Patrick, any guesses on who this week's director is? Could it possibly be? (laughs) This week's director is Quentin Tarantino. Patrick, One more question for you. What about Quentin Tarantino made you want to be on this episode? Prior to my really deep dive into the world of film over the last couple of years, Tarantino was the real bridge 
to being sort of a more distinguished cinephile. I think that's the case for a lot of people. He, his films, even though they can be crass at times, are seen as more highbrow than the generic blockbusters and yet still seem to receive the same amount of praise. There's a certain class to them and they exist in sort of their own world. And prior again to me truly becoming the cinephile that I am today, his was the peak for me. And understanding what he brings to film is what led me, in, in a way, to wanting to dive into film more and more. Awesome. And I will admit 100%, I am not the biggest Quentin Tarantino fan. I respect him as a filmmaker. It just some of his films aren't to my taste or my aesthetic. And even for someone who likes violence, like there are times where some of the violence just gets over the top. But I'm excited how you and I can craft some fantastic four movies based on his style, aesthetic, and actors he's worked with before. Before getting into the casting, I like to get to our next segment called Four Fantastic Films. Patrick, among the 10 films Quentin Tarantino has made, what would you say are your four favorite? And they do not need to be in any specific order. Uh, well, because I employ such a rigorous uh, tracking method of films, I, I have it readily available at my side, uh, as, as one should, I believe. I'll go in reverse order from four to one. Uh, number four for me is Jackie Brown. There's a criticism about Tarantino about his use, liberal, liberal use of uh, racial epithets. And even with that, I think this is a really interesting homage to the exploitation genre and exploitation film of the 70s and done in a more tasteful way than you would think. Number three, Pulp Fiction, a certifiable classic that I don't think I can actually add anything to in terms of discussion. Just saying the name sort of conjures up the image of what that film is and what that film means to so many people. Number two, uh, Inglorious Bastards, a genuinely perfect movie. Again, when you get two movies that you enjoy so much as I do these, you find yourself wanting for ways to describe them because you're just so excited about the movie in general that you're just stuck. Your, bar your brain freezes because there's so many great things about them. And number one, one of my five favorite movies ever, uh, Reservoir Dogs. The one thing I always come back to with Reservoir Dogs is that it's Tarantino. Before Tarantino is allowed to revel in his own excess, the thing with Reservoir Dogs is that it's so much shorter than all of his other films. And it gets the point across that much more efficiently. Really, the only thing wrong with it is Tim Roth's accent, because uh, that is dreadful. All great choices. Looking at my list, we actually only have one crossover, that being Reservoir Dogs, which I don't know if I can say much more on it than you already have. So I'm not. <laughs> my my next ones, I'm going to cheat and combine them. Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. I Again, the action there seems fitting. I love the revenge story. I think Volume 1 is significantly stronger than Volume 2. But as a whole story, I still love what Quentin Tarantino is telling. And I think Uma Thurman's great. I think she is fantastic. <laughs> He said it! He said it! One of her best performances as the bride. I really don't have much more to say beyond that. And my last one is his most recent, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think the reimagination of the, the Sharon Tate story is really interesting. As much as Brad Pitt was great and deserving of an Oscar, I think this probably was my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance, maybe ever. And I thought he probably was a little more deserving of an Oscar there. But I think there were moments in this film that were so genuine and genius and more heartfelt than I think I've seen in a lot of more recent Tarantino films that really struck a chord with me. And again, near the end, there was this really hyper violent scene that seemed to maybe knock it down a peg for me. 
Uh, and again, I like violence in movies for the most part, but I think leading up to it, there was so much going for it. It had so much momentum. And I feel like this kind of course corrected in a way that didn't work the best for me. But again, my overall viewing experience was a net positive for this film. With our favorite films now addressed, it is time to get to the segment you've all been waiting for, the fan cast at casting. Here, we will go through each character, pitching which actor or actress will be filling the shoes of the iconic Marvel characters. First up is Mr. Fantastic himself, Reed Richards. Patrick, who are you casting as Mr. Fantastic? My Reed Richards, and to me, this was a no-brainer. This was sort of the first name that came to mind on my end. The aforementioned Oscar winner, first performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Mr. Brad Pitt. I see, yeah, it's the classic dilemma, right? The thing that's always said about Brad Pitt is he's a character actor in a movie star's body. And I think that's something that can translate pretty well to what I foresee Reed being in the movie that I've created. Uh, someone who may be struggling a little bit with the role that he's been tasked and the management that he kind of has to do of the other members of the four. And I think that is something that Pitt can tap into very, very well. I'm fascinated to see how he fits in the movie you have in mind. I mean, Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt. He can he can do many things. He's an Oscar winner. He's been in so many great movies. Mr. Fantastic is not the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Brad Pitt, but he is a, an actor of such a quality that I think it could work. But again, yeah. we'll have to wait to see what your pitch is. I'm sorry to disappoint everyone. He will not be reprising his accent from Snatch. <laughs> oh, darn. Darn. Oh, man. If only. only. Well, I hope my casting lives up to that. But for my film that I'm going to be pitching later, my Mr. Fantastic casting comes from the same film, 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But no, it is not Brad Pitt. Um, it is actually an actor who plays an actor, a Western actor to be more specific, uh, James Stacy in the film, My Mr. Fantastic, is Justified's own Timothy Oliphant. I was I struggled a lot with Mr. Fantastic, and even now I I have some trepidation about Timothy Oliphant. I think he has the look for sure. He has the build to be Mr. Fantastic. The one thing that I'm not sure about is his accent ability. Can he not talk in that Southern draw like he does in so many films? And even so, maybe Mr. Fantastic speaks with us a little bit more of a Southern draw. Who knows? But I think Timothy Oliphant has a great ability to be sharp, witty. I don't know if we've seen him play this hyper-intelligent character before, but all the characters he plays are very capable and intelligent in the field that they are portraying. And I think if thrown into this situation, into this movie that I will be pitching later, I think Timothy Oliphant really can knock it out of the park. And I do first and foremost think he has the look to be maybe a little more older, grizzled, Tarantino-esque Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. And I, when you said that, I immediately thought to some of the stuff that he did in Deadwood. And I'm thinking... Mm -hmm. The, not so much the sort of lawman aspect of it, but the position that he held, there was a real leadership role and the relationship he had with, say, Ian McShane in that show, I can see him having a really interesting, contentious relationship with, with any potential Doctor Doom. Definitely, definitely. But with any Mr. Fantastic comes his wife, his Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman. Patrick, I'm very curious to see who you have cast in a Tarantino role for The Invisible Woman. We go from something that I think was relatively standard to 
Tarantino just throwing everything out of the, the baby out with the bathwater. Um, I'm going, I'm completely reversing the canon here. I'm completely transforming it. Uh, I'm taking another actor from an actress from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the breakout star of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, young Miss Julia Butters. Oh, this is a decision and this this will make sense as i pitch the movie and i, I, say, I know it like, sounds i am i know it sounds bad shit crazy right now but i had this thought i was like you know what tarantino would really want to push this tarantino would want to do something really interesting with this and when we get to sort of the genre and the pastiche that tarantino puts on this movie i think Julie Butters is perfect for this, not only just because she was perfect as that little girl uh, that interacted with DiCaprio that and knew DiCaprio just was the best acting I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was truly fantastic. He said it. He said it. What someone so young was able to do, and I want to try and do something very different with this because I imagine that Tarantino would want to do something different and it's a really interesting thought exercise to try and place that as a fantastic form movie. <laughs> as an aside, Patrick, you maybe unexpectedly or unknowingly said fantastic in your little uh, pitch there for Julie, Julia Butters. And so I'm still waiting for our producer, Pat, to put some sort of sound whenever someone says fantastic in this podcast. But again, I digress. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? I don't, I, I don't know what to think, so I'm not going to say more. I'm just going to wait for the pitch to see how this plays out with Julia Butters as a Sue Storm. Huh. Anyway, maybe I went a little more traditional then, or uh, with with my Sue Storm pick. I can't get less traditional. Let's (laughs) let's be clear. clear. (laughs) Um, I went with an actress who is maybe in one of Quentin Tarantino's uh, less talked about films. Uh, She plays the character Lee Montgomery in 2007's Death Proof. My Sue Storm, my Invisible Woman, is Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. I think really she's the whole package when it comes to a potential action star. She was fantastic in Birds of Prey. I think she can play both maternal. She can play a badass action character. I think she can hold her own against a Timothy Oliphant and some of the other characters that I will be pitching later. I think she, I I can't call her an up and comer because she's really kind of established herself now. But I think in the MCU, she could really lay some groundwork as a kick-ass female hero in this universe and really become more of a name that she deserves to be to the general movie going populace. I I think Mary Elizabeth Weinstead kind of checks all the boxes for not only just an action hero, but a Marvel hero and a Sue Storm. Yeah. I think the action point is very sound there. Uh, I agree with you. She was the standout for me in Birds of Prey and her role as Huntress there. There's something truly special about her when she's thrust into this type of position, maybe not necessarily as the lead lead, but allowing her, her, her skills in that manner to be highlighted. And for those like one or two truly badass moments in a film to come through, uh, Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is a phenomenal pick here. Thank you. And without giving too much away about my choice, one thing that really solidified this pick was her performance in 10 Cloverfield Lane. I think there are aspects of that film that you may see creep inside my pitch a little bit. And that really, once I thought, realized she was in that film, Mm -hmm. that is, that knocked it home for me as my choice. And again, with, we have Sue Storm, but we can't forget about her little brother, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. 
Patrick, I want to know who your Johnny Storm is. Well, um, Sue Storm's not so little brother uh, in this case. <laughs> uh, we're, we're reversing the roles here. Older brother, younger sister, as opposed to Fair. older sister, younger brother. Um, again, sort of a no-brainer for me when I thought about it. He's only in five minutes of a movie, if, if that, um, from The Hateful Eight. Uh, pretty much the ideal Johnny Storm for me, uh, Channing Tatum. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, when I think Johnny Storm, I think those, the, the Fantastic Four movies, the first two, and I think of Chris Evans playing him as sort of a cocky upshot, a young upshot, sort of taking on the role of the Human Torch, but like also being really, really self, like not self-centered so much, but I guess self-centered. I don't know. That's yeah, how, that's yeah. how I think of it, right? And so of the more recent films that Tarantino's made, Tatum stood out as the person who has either played or most looks like he could play, uh, that sort of thing. I know his role as uh, Jody Domergue isn't um, fleshed out all that much, but you look at some of the other stuff that he's done, and I think he can bring a level-headedness, but also hot-headedness uh, to the role of Johnny Storm, and he, he'd do very, very well. I, I wouldn't quite, I wouldn't say these are exact parallels, but he kind of reminds me of a Robert Pattinson in that he's maligned for some of these early films he did. But really, when you look at like the Jump Street films yeah. or Hail Caesar, despite maybe your thoughts on the film, like he's done a lot of really good stuff and really shows he can be a top fox catcher. Sorry, fox catcher comes to mind. Like he shows he has the chops to be an actor and definitely in an action role. I think I think Channing Tatum, again, very excited to see what your pitch is, but I think he definitely has what it takes to be a Johnny Storm. And, and this is a little bit of a hint. I think what you mentioned about the Jump Street films in diverging the path from Pattinson, he's shown he's got the, like, the true deadpan comedic chops. I think Channing Tatum is a fantastic choice. But for my Johnny Storm, I went with what I think is a relative newcomer. Having been in some Disney and CW shows, he appears as Tex in 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My Johnny Storm is Austin Butler. If you look him up, he looks like this young, attractive, kind of hot-headed, self-centered, to use the word you use, guy. Really, he looks like a Johnny Storm. That's And that's really what I'm basing this off of. Yeah. He, As Taxi had this kind of cocky, kind of evil arrogance to him. Not that I'm saying my Johnny Storm is going to be evil, but you need that kind of cocky bravado. And I think he pulled that off in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So really, that's what I'm basing it on because I couldn't find anyone else that I think quite fit the mold as a good younger brother to Sue Storm who could kind of have that smoldering, no pun intended, <laughs> smoldering yeah. look. And if you, if you Google him, you'll know what I mean. Yeah. I think Austin Butler really just fits as a human torch in this film. Yeah, he, he. I briefly considered it before I sort of went down the road that I went down. Uh, I think what he brings as an unknown is also very interesting, a relative unknown, of course, compared yeah, to yeah. Um, the people that you discussed previously. And you sort of need that in, in, a, in a setting like that, where you have four main characters allowing someone to shine and bring out their talents amongst established stars is always something that truly benefits uh, not just uh, a superhero movie like the Fantastic Four, but uh, any movie in general. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I wanted to make sure I wasn't packing this film with all, all stars, if possible. And his name stuck out. I'm like, why not? Why not? He has the look. Should go, I should run with it. So I did. So we've gotten through 
three characters in the Fantastic Four, but we certainly cannot forget about my personal favorite, The Thing, aka Ben Grimm. He is Reed Richards' best friend. He is the butt of a lot of Johnny Storm's jokes. He gets along very well with Sue Storm. He is, I think, the glue that keeps the Fantastic Four together personally. Patrick, who is your Ben Grimm? one that came to me pretty quickly i was surprised how some of these just like the inspiration hit almost instantly with a lot of these in tarantino's universe he's a, a little more gruff than i think my ben Grimm will end up being but he's shown levity elsewhere uh mr ving rames as as my ben Grimm, someone that i truly truly enjoy i think there's one movie that i'm drawing a lot of inspiration from and even movie series i guess uh, his roles in the mission impossible universe yeah, and and sort of that sort of stuff, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to go for here. Even okay. if there is going to be a tad more edge to him behind the scenes as to who his character actually ends up being. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about my plans for Ving Rams. I think he's the person I'm most excited to explore as a character in the universe that I'm creating. Yeah, and I think something about Vin Ving Rams is, while he certainly has the bulk, he also, I think, can portray the heart and kind of the sad, the inner sadness that Ben Grimm typically portrays and has with him in him as a character. So again, four very interesting choices. And I, I, I'm excited to see how this comes together. I'm shaking with anticipation what your pitch is. But no, I think Ving Rhames could certainly knock it out of the park as Ben Grimm. Um, I don't think my, my choice is as inspired. I think one thing I'm very, really trying hard to do with all of these picks is picking an actor who is Jewish or has at least played Jewish in previous films. And again, I went back to the same while, went back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And while it's a smaller role, he plays Jay Sebring in the film. I went with Emile Hirsch. I think Emile Hirsch is just a good actor. I think with all the prosthetic or the CGI they're going to use. You're, you don't need to worry about the bulk that he would need to put up in for some other characters where CGI is less required. And I think he could provide the accent. He could do the buddiness with Reed Richards. He could play the sadness that we talked about earlier. He can be the butt of the jokes from Johnny Storm. I think he would fit in. And while he is a name, he's not the biggest name compared to some of these others that I have gone through. And I think he would fit very well kind of being the glue for all these characters. Uh, is it my favorite casting? No, but I still think he kind of checks the boxes for what I'm going for. And with the film I'm pitching, I also think with other films he's been in, he's going to be a fit with what I'm hoping to do with the movie. Yeah, um, Emile Hirsch, someone I looked at as a name, but never really truly considered because I think, again, all of those these names just came to me and like in a fit of inspiration, it was like, okay, this is how I'm doing this. This is how I'm doing this. This is how I'm going to change this around. And so I think he will lend an interesting take to Ben Grimm, especially as you said, as a result of him not having the like natural bulk that is commonly associated with it. And so the need for CGI and how that would look and how Tarantino would handle that yeah. is something that I think is really interesting and will lend a nice twist to your pitch. Thank you, I appreciate that. But last and certainly not least, every hero, every hero team needs, needs a villain. And I think Fantastic Four have one of the best, one of the most, most iconic, at least within the Marvel uh, stratosphere, and that's Dr. Doom, Victor Von Doom. Patrick, who is your villain? Who is your Victor Von Doom in your movie? 
This one will, again, change the canon up a tiny bit. Uh, maybe not as wildly as my previous decision, but um, I see my Doctor Doom, Tarantino's Doctor Doom, as more of a mentor figure to Reed Richards than as a sort of competitor and rival. A mentor that will, again, eventually turn on because he's Doctor Doom. But as a result, I'm casting the inimitable Harvey Keitel. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. It's um, it's one of those things, and Keitel's getting up there, so <laughs> my movie lends itself to that, where he's not going to have to move all that much. He's going to be talking, he's going to be yeah. a presence, but he's not. He's going to be relatively stationary, and it's set up sort of around that. And I think Keitel is someone who, when you look at it, and it's like he's never been nominated for an Oscar. If you go no. back and you look, Harvey Keitel's never been nominated for an Oscar. That's mind blowing, right? I mean, all of these like. I mean, it was one of my favorite films of all time is Sister Act. I mean, that's Oscar worthy stuff he was doing oh. in there. Like, yeah, man, of course. Been robbed. I don't know what the Academy was thinking with that, but no, Harvey Keitel, that's an interesting Dr. Doom choice. Yeah. And I, I think maybe this is some of my sort of lack of familiarity with the comics and the canon as, as someone who has a cursory knowledge of. Yeah of the whole canon, I think I'm providing a very interesting take and what I think would be an interesting Tarantino take on this particular uh, group of people. And I mean, that's what I love about what we're doing on this show. I don't want people who are always so intimately knowledgeable about the Fantastic Four. In some cases, it's needed for the films we're pitching. In others, especially with like a Tarantino, I want to get wild. I, wa I want craziness. I want people to, to try and break the rules essentially and i think with the list you have you're certainly setting yourself up for something that's going to be interesting and going to be talked about there are no rules <laughs> it's, it's it's quite to put it quite simply there are no rules the film i've created does not exist uh in any any context whatsoever that's amazing. why it's happening amazing and i you know a lot of me there's a lot of like i get really sad when we do these knowing that these films aren't actually going to happen but, you know, it's still fun to dream. It's still fun to hope. It's still fun to, to fan cast and pitch this stuff. And that's why, that's why I wanted to do this show, to get people to flex their creative muscles. And so far, one and a half episodes in, I'm excited to keep going. Oh, yeah. And I'm excited to keep listening. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, you pitched your Dr. Doom, and I certainly, I still have mine left. I went with someone I think is probably a little more obvious, at least in the recent Tarantino landscape. Uh, I did go, I would say maybe a similar route as you, as he is, it, Dr. Doom typically is a colleague or a student colleague of Reed Richards. I went with him potentially being a, a mentor or a, a teacher in, in this world that I'm creating because he is a little older than T Timothy Oliphant, the actor that I chose. But I went with the actor who played Hans Landa in 20, 2009's Inglorious Bastards and Dr. King Schultz in 2012's Django Unchained, I went with Christoph Waltz as my Dr. Doom. I don't know if I can really say anymore that people don't know. I just think he would be a freaking fantastic Dr. Doom. He's been a villain. He's been a great villain. I think he could show himself being the leader of uh, Latveria, I, like the country he's in. I... I, I'm I'm speech I'm making myself speechless just with yeah. the idea of him as Doctor Doom. I don't think he would have a problem wearing the mask. Some actors might have a problem covering their face the whole time. I don't think he would. 
he was a great, despite what you think of Spectre, I still think he was a great villain in the Bond films, despite the movie not being so great, in my humble opinion. I just think he could pull it off. I mean, he he's an actor of a quality that could be just a kick-ass villain. Yeah, he brings a certain camp to the role, which is really, really interesting when you think about it. And if you decide to go down the route that I think you might be going down, it'll be very interesting. He kind of would have made a perfect like secondary or auxiliary villain in my yep. movie, honestly. Uh, and thinking about how I'm pitching it and what I'm trying to do with everything. Uh, Christoph Waltz is an absolutely inspired choice. I love it. Thank you. I love Thank it. you. I, I feel like it was just a pitch right down the middle for me to hit. Like it was right there and... I'm not one to, oh, just because it's the obvious choice doesn't mean it's not the best choice for the movie I'm making. And in this case, there's really not, not a bad reason to cast Christoph Waltz in a film. And yeah. so I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, with that being done, we've gotten through our five characters, our five main characters, I should say, for this fan cast it for podcast for Quentin Tarantino. Now is the time for our pitches. Patrick, before getting into the meat and potatoes of your pitch, I have two questions for you. First, is your movie an origin film? And second, is it at all connected into the MCU? So first of all, it is an origin story. It is entirely an origin story. I'll spoil this right now. They do, <laughs> not, have, they do not have their powers in this movie. Okay. Uh, second one, no, not connected to the MCU in any way. This is a standalone sort of thing that would hopefully maybe spin off into a couple movies afterwards, but who knows? Yeah, great. And like I said, going into this, never an expectation that it needed to be. If you want it to, wonderful. I would have been a very surprised if knowing you, also knowing Quentin Tarantino, if this had anything to do with the <laughs> MCU, but I am actually a little surprised hearing some of the actors you chose, that it's an origin film. So I'm yeah. interested to see how that plays out because like I said, wasn't expecting that for your movie based on the actors you've chosen. Yeah, and there's, I'll challenge listeners to think back to when I was pitching the characters. There's a very specific reason um, I said the things that I said about certain characters <laughs> as to the fate potentially of some of the people that I've casted. It's uh, it's going to be a wild ride. Well, I don't want to keep people waiting any longer. Patrick, pitch us your Quentin Tarantino Fantastic Four film. So the thing with Tarantino is that every single one of his movies is a pastiche of something that he has truly enjoyed in the past. Reservoir Dogs is the transposition of the greatest storytelling film ever made in Rashomon to 90s Los Angeles with some dirtbag crime dudes. Pulp Fiction is French New Wave. Uh, Jackie Brown's Black Exploitation. you can go on and on and on. One of the things he has yet to do is make a pastiche of those really cheesy 60s Bond films. And he is going to sort of flip that formula on its head use the storytelling devices of Reservoir Dogs to take a look at our titular Fantastic Four through the lens of four different spies from across the world. The setting is uh, October 1961, Northern Russia. Uh, wake of, in, the way, in the immediate wake of the Bay of Pigs invasion and the upcoming and ongoing space race at the time, 
Victor Von Doom, who I still haven't come up with a name for, so I'm just going to use that, a Russian defect to the United States, has tasked four members of the CIA to infiltrate a northern Russian Siberian uh, area of interest. They're thought to believe about something to do with space, the potential for nuclear weapons. It's very vague and everything at the beginning is kept very vague, save for the relationship between Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards. And so what'll end up happening over the course of the movie is we're gonna get the backstories of each of these characters and we'll get to get to learn more of them as they interact, much in the way that Reservoir Dogs is, is sort of set up. You get the flashbacks to see how did Mr. White come into this? How did Mr. Blonde come into this? How did Mr. Orange come into this, who he really is? And so in the quote unquote, Mr. White role, we have Reed Richards where everything is sort of as it seems, we just start to learn more about his relationship to the CIA as an American. From there, we get the dual story of Johnny Storm and Sue Storm. The great thing about this is in the movie, I envision Johnny is being tasked with going and Stu somehow sneaking onto the plane or like finding a way as someone who's very young but is sort of adept at these sort of spy things to somehow finding her way there as a child and getting up to all this sort of mischief. Um, I don't foresee her being the quote unquote comic relief of the film. I think that will just come generally in the interaction between the four people. But her role is to function as sort of the odd one out and trying to gain the trust of the other two, seeing as she's not an actual like CIA agent, she's just some stowaway kid. And so we'll get there and we'll learn that they're not exactly American intelligence, they're actually British intelligence who's been placed in the United States. And then we get to, I think my favorite part of the whole thing. And then we get to the story of Ben Grimm, which will be a twist, I would say, probably two thirds of the way in, much in the same way that Tim Roth is revealed to be a police officer. Uh, Ving Rhames, Ben Grimm, is revealed to be a Russian asset. He is an American citizen, but given that this is in the peak of the civil rights movement, he is a radical black activist who has been co-opted by the Soviet Union because he is fed up with not only his existence as a black man in the United States of America, but also the moderate nature of say a Martin Luther King in comparison to his own ideas and his own willingness to act against the US government. He has been taken in by the Soviets. He is a Soviet asset in the United States trying to engage in subterfuge and limit the ability of these American agents to gain the secrets that they are trying to keep in Northern Siberia. The ultimate end of the film is, and it's interesting, I wanted to tie this into history as much as possible. The reason why it's set specifically in October, 1961, the Soviet Union did a nuclear test in Northern Siberia. Reed Richards is going to die in that nuclear test. I specifically said, when, when you asked me who my Mr. Fantastic was, I specifically said, my Reed Richards is Brad Pitt. Reed Richards doesn't gain powers. Reed Richards dies as a part of this whole event and attempt to gain intelligence that is really just a plot by another Soviet asset, the guy named Victor Von Doom, who was a double agent all along sort of thing. It'll be a really dumb Tarantino way of revealing it too. It's going to be great. <laughs> but it's to leave them to die. It's to leave them all in to die because Reed Richards is the all-American. They don't want to deal with that. Sue Storm is sort of an ancillary casualty, like no one, the Soviets didn't expect that to happen. Johnny's a bit of a hothead and they 
wouldn't have been able to keep a lid on him. And while the support in the United States is really needed from someone like uh, Ben Grimm in this context, they still want to get rid of him because they ultimately don't share the same goals. It's an enemy, an enemy is my friend. And if you can sort of get rid of that at an opportune time, that would be ideal. Now, if there is a second move, the three not named Reed Richards do survive and do obtain their powers. And it's found that someone else sort of in that area who I haven't thought about casting because I was just worried about this movie would develop the powers of Mr. Fantastic and sort of slowly engender themselves because the other three realize that he's also adopted powers as a result of this nuclear blast. And yeah, I think that's generally the vibe I'm trying to go for. Do the Rashomon thing of getting the backstory of these characters as to how not only they're they come together in the end, but how they remain independent and how they existed before all of this. And also throw in the like witty scenes from say a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where it's not even really concerned with the main plot. Harvey Keitel, again, when I mentioned him as being someone that's not moving, he's going to be sort of the man in the chair type scenario where you hear a lot of them, you don't see a lot of them. Uh, communication stuff, just talking. Um, there's a lot of like really little details that I foresee someone like Tarantino fleshing out that I can't quite get to right now. But all in all, I think it would make a really interesting movie, even if the twists at the end are kind of a little dumb. That was freaking fantastic. And I know I said fantastic, but like, I love that. That was awesome. I'm so happy you put that much thought into it. That is a movie I would see over and over again. And knowing Quentin Tarantino, like that is something that really excites me. Holy crap, Patrick. That was awesome. I thank you for that. That was great. Thank you for the <laughs> effusive praise. I, uh... <laughs> oh man, like that, that's really cool. I, and just knowing again with, through the lens of Quentin Tarantino, all of this, I'm excited, excited to see, as you said, the, the pastiche of this Cold War spy thriller ask yeah. not quite cold war but just the sort of using that as a backdrop but right, using the right. sort of camp of uh, uh, an early bond movie i foresee yeah. maybe him taking some of the elements of something more recent like uh guy Ritchie's a man from uncle and like yeah. using sort of that and the original like get smart and all this sort of 60s spy stuff that existed at the time and, and turning it turning it over completely and and again with the ending you have though like the the potential cliffhanger barring a second film like it's engrossing so well done i'm excited i hope you our listeners are excited about that pitch that's never going to happen unfortunately but in some parallel universe maybe there is a fantastic four movie that is like this looking at my pitch i don't again like like pat last week who put so much great thought into it i did not I have a pitch, but not nearly as fleshed out as that. What I will say, there are some tiny parallels, I'd say, between mine and yours. My For my pitch, for my Quentin Tarantino Fantastic Four movie, the, the biggest similarity is uh, Dr. Doom is sort of the man in the chair. That is, I'd say, the biggest parallel between your pitch and my pitch. But for mine, I really wanted to go with something... I'll, I'll be upfront. I did not like The Hateful Eight. I think for a lot of people, it was a disappointing film, at least as far as Quentin Tarantino goes. I don't want to speak for you, Patrick. It wasn't one of your top four. So I'm going to assume it's your bottom, one of your bottom six. <laughs> it, I mean, the math checks out, right? Um, but I mean, for someone like me, a disappointment for Tarantino is better than most people's best movies. So. Fair. 
for mine, I really wanted a contained one room film. And I want, cause I wanted him to improve on that, that what I thought we were going to get with the hateful eight that didn't quite live up to the expectations I personally had for the film. So for mine, I'm going with something that is very reminiscent of, of the play, no exit, where you may get the line, uh, hell is other people in this film uh, through I'm not sure if we see what leads up to it or not, but essentially Dr. Doom has trapped the the four Fantastic Four members in the negative zone. A brief little synopsis of the negative zone is a multidimensional prison that was created in the Marvel Universe essentially to keep supervillains in. And if Pat wants to correct me later in post-production and interject, he is more than welcome to. Otherwise, if that's right, I'm just going to go with it. (laughs) Oh, hey, True Believers. It's your friendly neighborhood, Pat, a.k.a. Monty from the Montyverse here. And I just wanted to give you some quick facts about the Negative Zone. While Dan is, in fact, correct, there was a prison built inside of the Negative Zone during the Civil War comic arc by Tony Stark, Reed Richards, and Hank Pym that was called Project 42, the Negative Zone is a bit more complicated than that. It is essentially a universe parallel to Earth, has a lot of things that are similar to Earth, but a lot of things that are vastly different. One of the main differences is that it's a universe full of matter that's entirely negatively charged, meaning it's antimatter. Another difference is that while our universe is constantly expanding, the Negative Zone is so old that it is a universe that is, in fact, contracting and it is completely unclaimed territory so a lot of people have tried to claim the territory over the years one of the main characters to reside in the negative zone is a fantastic four villain known as a nihilus the negative zone is also filled with completely pressurized breathable air meaning that people from our dimension and earth can be there and breathe just fine that's it for me guys but essentially they're trapped in a room in the negative zone. Dr. Doom has gained access to the controls and essentially has locked him in there and is forcing them to really face each other. And he is slowly but surely revealing secrets about them that is essentially trying to get them to turn on themselves. Um, Some ideas I had were Reed actually knew how to fix Ben Grimm all along, but didn't for some selfish reasons. And that pisses Ben Grimm off, naturally. Uh, the Another one, I again, all ideas, I'm not sure quite yet, but maybe Sue Storm cheated on Reed and his kids aren't actually his kids. Another idea I had was that Johnny Storm got in immense of debt and so started selling Fantastic Four secrets to some bad people to hi- cover that up, to make everyone else mad. So essentially, Victor Von Doom is using the Fantastic Four's deepest, darkest secrets to turn them against each other. And in Reservoir Dog-like fashion, they're probably going to end up beating the crap out of each other. Maybe they they come together and find a way out. Who knows? That doesn't sound too Tarantino-esque to me, though. I feel like Dr. Doom's going to succeed and they're all going to die. Or one of them lives and has to live with that deep, dark secret forever. Doom lets him go. And that's that. That's really all the thought I put in this pitch. But really, I wanted this self- contained film that was an improvement upon the hateful eight it again played off this no exit people are their own worst enemy and dr doom is ultimately successful in what he's trying to set out to do and to me that feels very tarantino-esque in a way granted a lot in a lot of his films the hero wins but i think in this case 
I think it would be fun for him to play with the idea of the villain actually winning in this case, but also showing that even our heroes aren't always that good. And I think what you see in some of his films is that there are, is a darkness to, to everyone. And I want that to play out in this film. So that's really where I, my head was at. And I think when you have Timothy Oliphant, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, Mila Hirsch, and Austin, um, Austin Butler, sorry, I think all of them have the ability to play off those vices, those dark secrets very well to portray what about them is their darkness that ultimately might make their most close loved ones turn on them. It's really interesting because I think an early version of what I was going for is really similar to that. Uh, I was trying to play with some late 70s, early 80s horror motifs that I think would be really interesting for Tarantino to turn on. And ultimately, I just, I couldn't nail down specifically how the ending would look. And I was really disheartened by that until I figured out how to flip everything on its head. But I think what you're doing, uh, reminded of a specific Doctor Who episode where that sort of thing happens to the Doctor and his companions. And it's a really interesting way to pit them not only against an enemy, but each other. And that's always really interesting when you're dealing with a group dynamic and one that is supposed to be as unified as the Fantastic Four. Yeah, one thing I really, I mean, again, all your whole pitch I found fascinating. And to compliment both you and first guest, Pat, like I am so thrilled with the thought you put into it. One thing that really captivated me about your pitch was the playing with time, the Rashomon kind of aspect. And I think you had some concern on how maybe Tarantino-esque you could you could achieve it. But when you look at something like Reservoir Dogs, or even with the, the time and the flashbacks with the Kill Bill volume one and two, that's very much his aesthetic, very much his style in some of his films. So I think you hit the nail on the head with this different pastiche as you using the word you use, but also using some similar stylistic um, storytelling tropes that he's done in the past as well. So I commend you very much for incorporating that, but also giving us a different time frame in which we haven't necessarily seen Tarantino explore yet. Thank you. I, I tried to be as original as someone who is known, and I use pastiche because I like Tarantino, and that's what the people who like Tarantino call his movies. Yeah. Um, a time frame that, as you mentioned, something that he hasn't really explored all too too much. I mean, we get Once Upon a Time in Hollywood sort of as the death of old Hollywood in the late 60s, but I think the early 60s is such a tumultuous time politically and globally. To capitalize on something like that is so, so interesting. And to use that as a background for a not really superhero movie, but using superhero yeah. characters and developing a universe that could potentially arise from it. I think that's pretty ideal. I mean, to that point, we're dealing with multiverses currently in many of our superhero films. So what's to say that while this isn't necessarily part of the MCU, that these characters exist in some sort of parallel universe where the powers aren't the focus, the, the characters are. And this story, I still think, fits in that general idea of a multiversal universe of characters and possibilities for these same people just kind of lined up next to each other. Additionally, it's not so out of the realm of possibility to see Tarantino want to delve into something more science fiction. We, With years and years of rumors of him wanting to do a Star Trek film, it's really not implausible to see him wanting to do a marvel film 
his own way. If he was ever given permission to do a film he wanted to do with Marvel characters, this seems more likely than your traditional MCU film that, that Kevin Feige would be overseeing. Granted, Kevin Feige's awesome, and he might let Quentin Tar Tarantino do a film like this because it's Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Feige's a smart guy, but uh, that's maybe a different parallel universe. Yeah, almost certainly. I know Tarantino probably wants to go out with a bang, and I don't know if for him a Marvel movie or a superhero movie is the bang he wants to go out on. Because, I mean, he wants to make 10 movies and he's always considered both Kill Bill films to be one movie, right? And so his 10th is going to be something so unlikely and so unheard of if it's not the Star Trek movie uh, that I think this might be, as you mentioned, out of the realm of possibility. So what bigger, bigger bang would there be than a film ending with a nuclear blast? True. 100%. <laughs> well, speaking of endings... That is the end of our fan cast and pitches for Quentin Tarantino and his helmed Fantastic Four film. We hope you, the listeners, enjoyed our exploration into this what-if scenario. Going forward, you can find us on Anchor, Apple, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. If you are listening on YouTube, we would greatly appreciate you hitting that subscribe button and commenting with who your Tarantino fan cast would be on what your thoughts of our lists are and what director you want to see next. Finally, I want to thank our guest, Patrick, for being here. It was a great casting. It was a great pitch. I really enjoyed you being on here. And I hope you join us again for a different director down the road. Also, I want to make sure to thank our producer, Pat Bolfamonte, for the work he does. And I want to especially thank Matt Hart and Maddie Gunner for the great theme music they created for us. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Dan Bettenhausen. And on behalf of my guest, Patrick Gibson, I hope you all have a fantastic day. Flame out.